Let's hear God's word turning together in the New Testament to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and chapter 15. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, and we're going to read the opening verses from verse 1 to verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning to read at the first verse. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so Jones was born in Cardiff, Wales, at the very end of the 19th century, on the 28th of December, 1899. He died more than 80 years later in Ealing, London, on the 1st of March, 1981. I was not quite six years old when Dr. Lloyd-Jones passed away, and had neither met him nor heard him preach. However... I remember very clearly the day of his departure from this scene of time. It was the Lord's Day, and the late Sidney Lawrence, who had recently retired from the pastorate of Knighton Evangelical Free Church in Leicester, was our preacher for the weekend at Send Evangelical Church in Surrey, where my father was then the minister. The phone rang in our home, and my father took the call. I can't remember who it was that phoned, but I do remember that they were phoning with the news that Dr. Lloyd-Jones had gone to glory. When my father announced this to those gathered in our front room, such was the effect on the adults present that I remember thinking to myself, I don't really know who this Dr. Lloyd-Jones was or why his passing should affect people so profoundly, but I have a feeling that one day I will. And on that occasion, at least, I was right. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was arguably the foremost British evangelical preacher of the 20th century and served Westminster Chapel in London for over 30 years, first as a temporary assistant to G. Campbell Morgan, then as co-pastor, and for 26 years as the minister. Lloyd-Jones spent most of his childhood 
in Langaitho, Cardiganshire, and was educated at Tregaron County School in Wales and Marylebone Grammar School in London. He studied medicine at St Bartholomew's Hospital and at the tender age of 21 became assistant to the royal physician Sir Thomas Horder. Having been brought up in Welsh Calvinistic Methodism, it was as a young doctor in London that Lloyd-Jones came to faith in Christ. Almost immediately, he began to wrestle with a growing sense of call to pastoral ministry. The result was that in 1927, aged just 27, Lloyd-Jones married his sweetheart, Bethan Phillips, turned his back on a top-class medical career in London's Harley Street, and headed back to his native Wales to take up the pastorate of Bethlehem in Sandfields, Port Talbot, a congregation of the forward movement of the Welsh Presbyterian Church. He spent 11 happy and blessed years at Sandfields. It was there that his two daughters, Elizabeth and Anne, were born. Lloyd-Jones was given to exercise an awakening ministry, with large numbers coming to faith. There were some unusually striking conversions, including those of characters such as Staffordshire Bill and Mark McCann, whose stories are narrated by Bethan Lloyd-Jones in her Banner of Truth paperback, Memories of Sandfields. However, in 1938, Lloyd-Jones resigned from his pastorate in Port Talbot, not knowing what the Lord had for him next, but believing with great conviction that his work there was done. Many of Lloyd-Jones' friends in his Welsh denomination hoped he would be appointed principal of their theological college in Bala, and it was largely for this reason that he turned down a call to the pastorate of Marylebone Presbyterian Church in London. However, their hopes were not fulfilled, and the Lord clearly had another plan, leading him to London and to Westminster Chapel. Westminster could hardly have been more different from Sandfields. Lloyd-Jones quickly became established as the leading non-conformist preacher in London, and the congregations grew massively, not only on Sundays, but also midweek, with many people from other churches coming to hear him during the week. He also exercised an ever-increasing travelling ministry, both throughout the United Kingdom and also overseas. It wasn't until 20 years into his Westminster pastorate that his first major book was published, namely Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. And although most of his writings were the fruit of his Westminster ministry, the majority of them were prepared for publication during his retirement years. These included his highly acclaimed multi-volume series on both Romans and Ephesians. Lloyd-Jones retired from Westminster Chapel in 1968. He had been seriously ill, but always maintained that he didn't retire on health grounds, having been given a clean bill of health shortly before making the decision to close his pastorate. He rather felt that the Lord had used the illness to help him to see that he should devote his remaining years to a wider ministry of preaching and writing, and that it was time for Westminster to call a younger man. Lloyd-Jones continued to preach until a few months before he died, 
preaching his final sermon for his friend Ray Gaydon at Barkham Baptist Church in Sussex. No serious study of the life and influence of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones can be done without reading the two volumes of his authorised biography, The First Forty Years and The Fight of Faith, written by Ian Murray and published by the Banner of Truth Trust. More recently, the distilled essence of those two weighty hardbacks has been published together with additional material in a single not-quite-so-weighty paperback entitled The Life of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, 1899-1981. Two other books that will help a rounded assessment of the man and his ministry are Martin Lloyd-Jones and 20th Century Evangelicalism, written by the late John Brencher, one-time president of the FIEC, published by Paternoster, together with Engaging with Martin Lloyd-Jones, edited by Andrew Atherston and David Carey-Jones, and published by Apollos. However, our particular focus this evening is on Lloyd-Jones' letters. Subsequent to the publication of his two volumes of authorised biography, Ian Murray edited this uh, further volume, entitled D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' Letters, 1919 to 1981. This year, 2024, happens to mark the 30th anniversary of the publication of this book of Lloyd-Jones' Letters. I bought my copy as a student back in 1994. I read it avidly then, have consulted it from time to time since, and greatly enjoyed rereading it over Christmas and New Year. I commend it to you for your interest, encouragement, and to help you think through various issues that I believe are as relevant today as they were in the middle of the last century. Indeed, I believe it's impossible properly to understand where we are as Reformed Evangelicals in Britain today without some meaningful understanding, not just of 20th century evangelicalism in general, but also of the shaping influence Dr. Lloyd-Jones had upon it uh, both during his lifetime and since. Murray collates a total of more than 120 of Lloyd-Jones' letters under nine headings, the early years to his wife, to friends and fellow ministers, Westminster Chapel, some family letters, a younger generation and new agencies, on evangelical unity and the threat of ecumenism, queries and controversies, and the, in inverted commas, retirement years. Some of the most moving are those written to his wife, Bethan. Most of these come from the early years of their marriage, and he often refers to her as the dearest girl in the world. One letter to his wife did make me chuckle. Ian Murray titles it, Love and Instructions, with instructions in inverted commas. It was written on the 25th of September, 1939. Lloyd-Jones had begun his ministry at Westminster Chapel, but Bethan and the girls hadn't yet relocated and were still living in South Wales. He writes, It is quite obvious that there is no hope for me to be with you for a meal on Wednesday night, but there will be ample time for me to get something to eat in Cardiff. Then, after furnishing Bethan with the details of his plans for the Thursday... 
he continues, the only meal that you will have to prepare for me is breakfast. The only addition to my usual is that I now take cornflakes in warm milk after the orange and then a boiled egg. Remember the wholemeal bread, exclamation mark, and the marmite, another exclamation mark. So who knew it? Dr. Lloyd-Jones, a marmite fan. Lloyd-Jones' letters are quite different to many other volumes of letters from the pens of notable Christians of past generations. I believe their greatest value is the insight they give into his thinking on many and varied aspects of Christian doctrine, experience, and practice, but especially on the issues of the day. It's notable that by far the largest sections in the book are these, to friends and fellow ministers, on evangelical unity and the threat of ecumenism, queries and controversies, and the retirement years. These four of the nine sections account for well over half the published letters, and many of them bear upon matters of controversy that were close to Lloyd-Jones' heart and upon which he invariably had strong opinions that he wasn't afraid to express, both clearly and stridently. In the rest of our time this evening, we'll explore three key areas of interest to Lloyd-Jones that form a necessary part of any study or assessment of him, his ministry, and wide-ranging impact, and which are as relevant to us now as they were then. The first is what I'm calling our need of the Holy Spirit. Lloyd-Jones clearly felt that the person and work of the Holy Spirit was a largely misunderstood doctrine, both by those Christians and churches who talked a lot about the Holy Spirit and by those who hardly mentioned him and seemed largely to live and minister as if the Holy Spirit didn't exist. An attempt to achieve balance in this area has meant that Lloyd-Jones has been claimed by both cessationists and charismatics to be one of them. The reality is that he was neither, And you don't have to land exactly where Lloyd-Jones landed in this debate to recognize that he was on to something. Our understanding of the Holy Spirit's person and work, and especially our need of him and his blessed influence, is something we cannot afford to neglect. Lloyd-Jones was not a cessationist. In other words, he didn't believe that the miraculous gifts of the early church ceased with the apostles. For example, in 1969, he wrote to his friend Dr. Gerald Golden, I think it is quite without scriptural warrant to say that all these gifts ended with the apostles or the apostolic era. However, nor was Lloyd-Jones a charismatic, writing in the same letter, At the same time, most of the claimed miracles by the Pentecostalists and others certainly do not belong to that category and can be explained psychologically or in other ways. I am also of the opinion that most, if not all, of the people claiming to speak in tongues at the present time are certainly under a psychological rather than a spiritual influence. Particularly helpful in an attempt to grasp Lloyd-Jones' thinking around our need of the Holy Spirit 
are two letters he wrote on the same day in February 1969, shortly after his retirement from Westminster. One was to Dr. John Shep, who had emigrated from the Netherlands to Australia and in 1951 had been one of the founding ministers of the denomination known as the Reformed Churches of Australia. The other was to Dr. Klaas Runia, a professor of theology at that denomination's college in Geelong, Victoria. Shep became involved in what he regarded as a revival and began to teach that the baptism of the Spirit was not something received by all Christians at conversion. Outlining this change in his theology to Lloyd-Jones, Shepherd written, Oh, that terrible Dutch pride and intellectualism, always fighting about doctrinal issues, but hardly any fellowship with each other in prayer and praise. A booklet Shep wrote, entitled The Baptism with the Holy Spirit, caused considerable controversy among the Reformed Churches of Australia, and he was answered principally by Runia. Both Shep and Runia appealed to Lloyd-Jones, but while having some sympathy with both, he supported neither, instead adopting a middle position and telling them both so. To Shep he wrote, I find myself in between both of you. I feel that you perhaps do not prove and try the spirit sufficiently, whereas I feel that Professor Runia is guilty of quenching the spirit. I may say that I have heard from him also and have written to him to that effect. To Runia, he wrote, I certainly feel that Professor Shep has crossed the line into a form of Pentecostalism, but went on, I still feel that you do not really allow for revival. And continues, I feel that you are contrasting the teaching of Acts and the teaching of the epistles in a wrong way. Surely the epistles assume the teaching of Acts and really they cannot be understood apart from that. And moves towards a conclusion saying, to sum up what I feel, I would say that Professor Shep is failing to prove and to test the spirits, while your danger is to quench the spirit. I feel that those in your position not only do not face that text, a reference to 1 Thessalonians 5.19, but really more or less exclude it altogether. You can see how Lloyd-Jones sought to walk a tightrope between not testing the spirits, lowercase s, on the one hand, and quenching the spirit, uppercase s, on the other he believed the Pentecostals and Charismatics were often guilty of the former, while Reformed Evangelicals, especially those of a cessationist persuasion, were often guilty of the latter. A positive summary of Lloyd-Jones' conviction regarding our need of the Holy Spirit is found in a letter he wrote in 1943 to his friend Leslie Land, who would later become the minister of Melbourne Hall in Leicester. These are Lloyd-Jones' words. More and more am I being drawn to see that the greatest need today is the power of the Holy Spirit in and through individuals. Right theology is essential, but without the power given by the Spirit, it can achieve nothing. Let me repeat that. Right theology is essential. 
but without the power given by the Spirit, it can achieve nothing. We move now from our need of the Holy Spirit to what I'm calling unity and separation. Rightly or wrongly, fairly or unfairly, Lloyd-Jones is perhaps best known in British evangelicalism today for his famous 1966 address to the National Assembly of the Evangelical Alliance. As early as 1947, he had proposed to church members that Westminster Chapel withdraw from the Congregational Union on account of its theological liberalism, although this didn't happen until much later in his ministry. In the mid-50s, Lloyd-Jones' son-in-law, Elizabeth's husband, Fred Catherwood, later Sir Fred Catherwood, who went on to serve as a member of the European Parliament, drafted a document entitled The Future of the Assemblies. A member of Westminster Chapel, Catherwood came from a brethren background. He maintained a close interest in discussions on changes which were then going on among the brethren and the possibilities these represented for a larger unity among evangelical churches in England. Writing to his son-in-law, Lloyd-Jones described his document as excellent in every way and was keen to share his own ideas. Lloyd-Jones writes, The number of those who are prepared to do anything by way of giving a lead is very small. On the other hand, I am convinced that if something along these lines became an accomplished fact and large numbers of assemblies were ready to call ministers, then large numbers of ministers would jump at the opportunity and leave the denominations to which they now belong. In 1962, Lloyd-Jones published his booklet, The Basis of Christian Unity, comprising expositions of John 17 and Ephesians 4. It's clear from this brief work that contrary to the accusations of many of his opponents, both then and now, Lloyd-Jones was a passionate believer in unity between churches but also that it must be a unity in truth. As he wrote in a letter dated April 1963, it is one thing to believe in church unity. It is another thing to believe in the present ecumenical movement. That is why I stress the importance of foundations. Before we rush to do something unthinkingly and in a state of panic, we must first of all face questions such as, what is a Christian? What is the church? What is the nature of true unity? Can two walk together except they be agreed? Hence Lloyd-Jones' 1966 call to ministers and congregations to leave the mixed denominations and come together as evangelicals. Much discussion continues over his precise vision. Some have argued that Lloyd-Jones wanted to establish a new evangelical denomination of which he would be the head, while others have suggested that he didn't really have any idea what should happen next. I don't believe either was the case. He had given significant help to his friend Graham Harrison, a Baptist pastor in Newport, Gwent, in drafting a statement entitled, The Church designed to help bring evangelical congregations with different denominational backgrounds into closer unity. 
He wrote to Harrison in February 1965, many thanks for your kind letter and for the copy of your statement on the church. I think it is excellent. It reads really well and I believe puts the main issues before us. I have therefore nothing but minor criticisms to offer. To Hilton Day, a Presbyterian minister in Silleth, Cumbria, he wrote in April 1965, with regard to your main feeling about what should be done at the present time, I have just to say that I am in entire agreement with you. I have all along felt that it is simply wrong to call men out without having thought the matter right through. In any case, these matters are never to be done in cold blood. There must always be some very definite leading and sense of constraint. I am sure that we need to exercise great patience in this extremely complex situation in which we find ourselves. And I am sure that at the end, we shall be shown the way. To his friend Philip Hughes, he wrote in December 1965, It is to me nothing less than tragic that evangelicals do not see that they have a unique opportunity at the present time if they but stood together. They still fondly imagine that they can infiltrate the various bodies to which they belong and win them over. As late as November 1967, he wrote to Graham Harrison, with regard to your position as regards the Baptist Union, I entirely agree with what you say. I have always said that it is better for men not to act in isolation, but rather to wait until a number can act together. We seem to have gone back on that over the last year or so, but we must always allow for the individual conscience in this matter. In his annual letter to the members of Westminster Chapel, dated the 1st of January 1968, the last one he wrote before he retired, their pastor was able to write, each one of us has to be loyal to his or her convictions and conscience, and we must align ourselves with all who are like-minded. To that end, as you will know, we have joined the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches during the past year, and through them, the British Evangelical Council. From all this, it's clear that Lloyd-Jones believed that where there is unity in the truth of God's word, that unity should be expressed visibly. But where there is no such unity, then there should be ecclesiastical separation. In other words, it was his personal conviction that evangelical ministers and churches should not be in organisational unity with non-evangelicals but that evangelical ministers and churches should be in meaningful fellowship with one another. He favoured a loose association of evangelical congregations and denominations along the lines of the FIEC and the BEC, now affinity. So we've thought about our need of the Holy Spirit and about unity and separation. A third aspect of Lloyd-Jones' thought on which his letters shed significant light is what we might call principled but pragmatic or fixed but flexible. It should already be clear that Lloyd-Jones was a man of principle and no mere pragmatist. He was a man of fixed opinions and never changed them on a whim. That said, reading his letters demonstrates that within his clear principles, he sought to be appropriately pragmatic. 
And while fixed where he believed, Scripture demanded him to be fixed. He was more than willing, indeed very happy, to be flexible where he believed the Scriptures gave him that freedom. What do I mean? Briefly, let me give you some examples. Firstly, Lloyd-Jones didn't make Calvinism a requirement for evangelical unity. He was a convinced Calvinist. But while any true Calvinist is an evangelical, Lloyd-Jones understood that many genuine evangelicals are not Calvinists. As he wrote to the editor of the British Weekly in 1953, I have always asserted and argued as strongly as I could that evangelicals should not separate on the question of Calvinism and Arminianism. They can discuss these matters and disagree about them, but separate concerning them, never. He continues, in the IVF, that's the InterVarsity Fellowship, which became UCCF, the Universities and Colleges Christian Fellowship. In the IVF, both here in Great Britain and on the international level, Arminians and Calvinists work most happily and harmoniously together. And it is my privilege to cooperate with all such. He goes on, moreover, I worked for five years in the happiest manner possible with the late G. Campbell Morgan, though he and I held opposing views on these matters. Furthermore, I have been severely criticised more than once for asking certain well-known Arminians to occupy my pulpit during my summer vacations. And he adds, it will interest you to know that I am denounced as a dangerous Arminian by a society of hyper-Calvinists here in London, a reference to the Sovereign Grace Union, because in my pamphlet on the presentation of the gospel, I teach that a free offer of salvation should be made to all in preaching. So Lloyd-Jones didn't make Calvinism a requirement for evangelical unity. Secondly, Lloyd-Jones didn't make secession a requirement for membership of the Westminster Fellowship, the minister's fraternal he founded and chaired. We have seen that Lloyd-Jones believed in calling evangelicals out of theologically mixed denominations. But listen to how he writes to Dr. David Samuel, an Anglican vicar in Lancashire who would later serve as director of church society. I am sorry to find the impression seems to have been given that only men who were prepared to leave their denominations immediately could attend. This is certainly not my idea. I feel that the only people who should be excluded from it are those who are convinced denominationalists and who feel that evangelicals must always stay in the larger bodies. Otherwise, it is quite open. I should be very grieved if the fellowship between people like you and myself were broken. But I do feel that the rigid denominationalists are really excluding themselves. So Lloyd-Jones didn't make secession a requirement for membership of the Westminster Fellowship. And thirdly, Lloyd-Jones didn't make membership of the Westminster Fellowship a requirement for his successor as the Minister of Westminster Chapel. Lloyd-Jones retired from Westminster in 1968. His immediate successor was Glyn Owen, a fellow Welshman who exercised a brief ministry at Westminster, having arrived from Berry Street Presbyterian Church in Belfast, Northern Ireland in 1969, and then departing for Knox Presbyterian Church in Toronto, Canada in 1974. R.T. Kendall, an American, would follow him in 1977 and remain for a quarter of a century. 
However, after Lloyd-Jones retired in 1968 and before Owen was called in 1969, while Omri Jenkins of the European Missionary Fellowship, EMF, was serving as the moderator of the church, there was very great interest among the membership at Westminster in the possibility of calling Eric Alexander, a Church of Scotland minister, then serving in New Mills, Ayrshire, before later exercising a notable ministry at St George's Tron in Glasgow. Alexander belonged to a theologically mixed denomination and felt neither need nor desire to relinquish that connection. He was reluctant to accept a call to Westminster because of what he felt was the chapel's strong separatist stance. This is part of what Lloyd-Jones wrote to Alexander in March 1969. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for your kindness and courtesy in sending me a copy of your letter to Omri Jenkins and also the personal word to me. I feel the position is now clarified as it is clear from your letter to Omri Jenkins that you clearly perceive that the real problem is not the Westminster Fellowship but rather the attitude of the church at Westminster to these various problems. As regards the fellowship, as I told you several times, there was no real problem, as I would have been quite happy for you not to belong to it, though naturally regretting that. At this point, I therefore cease to be implicated. From the beginning, I have not taken any part in the direct affairs of the chapel, and I only came in at your request over the matter of the fellowship, which Omri Jenkins rightly said had nothing to do with the chapel. Lloyd-Jones continues, now on the purely personal level, I want you to know that I fully understand and respect your position. Once more, however, I would venture to urge you to give the fullest possible consideration to the need of maintaining a biblical ministry at Westminster. For myself, I would be prepared to sacrifice almost anything for that. I cannot believe that you will allow perfectly natural traditional ties or considerations of friendship and associations to govern your decision as over against that overwhelming consideration. Again, I would press upon you the element of duty in this matter. Whether the Church of Scotland or any other church can be one for evangelicalism is at best a matter of speculation and possibility. But what a man like you could do at Westminster under God is a certainty. So, there are just three of many possible examples of Lloyd-Jones being principled but pragmatic or fixed but flexible. He didn't make Calvinism a requirement for evangelical unity. Lloyd-Jones didn't make secession a requirement for membership of the Westminster Fellowship. And he didn't make membership of the Westminster Fellowship a requirement for his successor as the minister of Westminster Chapel. This evening, with the help of some of his published letters, we've explored a little three key areas of interest to Lloyd-Jones that form a necessary part of any study or assessment of him, his ministry, and wide-ranging impact. Our need of the Holy Spirit, unity and separation, and being principled but pragmatic or fixed but flexible. I'm convinced that these issues are as relevant to us as British evangelicals now as they were then. And we don't necessarily have to dot the I's and cross the T's exactly where Lloyd-Jones did for us to learn from him in each of these areas. Just days before he died, unable to speak, 
Lloyd-Jones wrote in a shaky hand on a scrap of paper for Bethan and the family, do not pray for healing, do not hold me back from the glory. As Ian Murray writes, by smiles and gestures, he was able to continue to express himself until in the early morning of Sunday the 1st of March 1981, the day broke and the shadows fled away. Murray concludes his volume of Lloyd-Jones' letters with two quotations from his writings. From his book, Sanctified Through the Truth on the Assurance of Our Salvation, this is my final comfort and consolation in this world. My only hope of arriving in glory lies in the fact that the whole of my salvation is God's work. And from his book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure, where he writes, It is grace at the beginning, grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us at the beginning. Not what we have been, nor what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me.